Well, let's continue worshiping this amazing Savior by opening up his word. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing to walk through the book of 1 Peter. And in a moment, we'll pick up together in verse 7. So when you play board games, they're all very different. My family tries to get me to play board games. I'm not a I'm not a big board game guy in full disclosure, but sometimes they'll be able to convince me to play a board game. And sometimes you play a board game where they have that little plastic hourglass. You ever played a game with that? Got the sand in the top. And you know immediately when the hourglass is there, you're going to have to focus and get with it with that game. There's going to be no time to waste in that game. Well, today we're going to come to a text that's going to remind us that we need to have that same important mentality when it comes to our lives. That as we live out our lives, we do not have unlimited time. That there's going to be no time to waste in this life on the earth. We must focus and get with it. Peter's already reminded us we need to have an eternal perspective, but we also really need to have a terminal perspective that, that time is limited. That increasingly our time is running short that there's more sand now in the bottom of the hourglass and we don't know how much time is left. Now, do you know that about your life? Do you know that this could be the final year of your life on the earth? Do you know that? Do you know in reality, this could be your final day on the earth? We must live with that reality. This could be the day that Jesus returns. This could be the day that the judgment of God begins to unfold on the earth toward those who have not believed. This could be the day in Jesus' return when he now completes the salvation of us who have put our hope in him. But the point we're going to see in our text today is we don't have unlimited time on the earth. Yes, eternal life, but here on the earth in its present condition, time is very short. Hear it with me now. 1 Peter 4, 7. Listen, the end of all things is at hand. Hear that again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So when you realize that you do not have unlimited time, that will change your actions. We sometimes see it in sports, don't we? We we watch some game, maybe you watch something in the Olympics. In fact, there was a game last week where the U.S. national basketball team was in a game. And in the first half, they were down by 15. But in the second half, as time got short, they kicked it in the gear and they won handily. You ever had the question in your mind, why do they play two halves? You know, we, we, we all know they're just kind of messing around the first half. Why don't we just skip to the second half? It gets more urgent and everybody starts playing a lot better then. Well, listen, you and I should approach life that way, that there is a countdown clock in your life. And of course, we know, unfortunately for us, it's not in the sky telling us exactly how much time is left. But God has told you in his word, the time is short. And every day it's decreasing how much time you have on the earth. And here's another occasion of it. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. 
It's a truth repeated in the scriptures. We see it in Revelation 1. We see it repeated in Revelation 22. We see it in James chapter 5. We see it in Philippians chapter 4. We see it in places like Romans 13. Listen to Romans 13 verses 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Or Hebrews 10, 25 that says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, here it is, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Already here in chapter four, Peter has talked to us a bit about time. Remember we saw back in verse two that we're to live the rest of our time on the earth, however long it is, now for the will of God. We saw also in verse 3 of chapter 4 that when we look in the rearview mirror, you know, we spent enough time in the past living for our sinful flesh. Then we saw in verse 5 the concept of time when Peter says, you know, those people persecuting you, maligning you, they have a date in the future in the presence of Christ, their judge. And now verse 7, this sober statement, the end of all things is at hand. Meaning we're nearing the end of God's plan for the present earth in this condition. That the end of human history is closing in. That God soon, at a time we don't know, God will call game over. And all that will be left is a judgment. And those in unbelief now going to everlasting punishment. Oh, but for those who have believed in Jesus, as we just celebrated at the table, to everlasting punishment. Life, But the idea here is very clear. We do not have unlimited, unending time in the present circumstances. So what should we do in light of this, in light of the fact that time is short for us on the earth? Well, three things that we're told clearly in our text. First, pray. Also, love. And also, serve. Pray, love, and serve. Let's take on the first one here. Verse 7 again. Pray. The end of all things is at hand. Here it is. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Have you ever done that mental exercise? Like, what would I do if I knew this was my last week on earth? If I knew I had some illness that I felt great, but Friday was going to be my final day on earth. Or if you could know the unknowable, that only the Father knows this. But if you knew that Friday is the day Jesus is going to return. Again, you can't know that if anybody tells you they know that, uh, they're not telling you the truth. No one knows the day or hour but our Father. But what if you did know it? This is your final week. Have you ever thought about what would you do? I know what you wouldn't do if you're thinking biblically. You wouldn't go to that bucket list and go, you know, I always wanted to go to the Grand Canyon. You know, I'm going to think this is the week. I'm going to try to pull it together and go to the Grand Canyon. You know, I got that thousand piece puzzle I never finished. I think I better get it in gear. I always wanted to finish that thing. You wouldn't be thinking about some trip some entertainment, some hobby. You got one week left on the earth and you're feeling good. What would you do with it? Peter says, here's what you do. You, in this limited time, as the end draws near, you pray. You prioritize prayer in your life. And he says here, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. By the way, that's the opposite of the word we saw back in verse four, that word debauchery. Remember that word? Debauchery, that, that's the word that described our pagan past. And that word, remember, it carried the idea of senselessness or recklessness. So in our sin in the past, we lived lives of debauchery to varying degrees. But now no longer in debauchery, 
Now we live sober-minded, now with self-control, but for the purpose of the high priority of prayer. One scholar said it this way, the realization that God is bringing history to a close should provoke believers to depend on him. And this dependence is manifested in prayer for in prayer, believers, believers recognize that any good that occurs in the world is due to God's grace. So in all the challenges we presently face on earth and in all that may come, all of this thought should drive us to the presence of God in prayer. And all that we understand that we're to be accomplishing on the earth in these days, that also should drive us to prayer. So for instance, we know we're not just supposed to pass time until Jesus comes. We're not to play defense only till he comes. We're to be on offense. We're to be reaching in love. Peter told us in chapter three, we're to be telling people about the hope we have in Christ. And really to see any fruit from that, aren't we dependent upon God? And it drives us to prayer. So brothers and sisters, let's be sober-minded and run into and stay in the presence of God in prayer. These are days where we should be ramping up our prayer lives. We need to learn to pray meaningfully. So maybe you're here today and you say, I don't, I don't know how to pray. You might be among many believers who say, I have always struggled in prayer and I just don't know how to get it in gear and have a meaningful prayer life. Can I just give you a couple of suggestions here just as we talk about point one here of praying? First of all, I would encourage this way, start in a time with God in prayer by listening to God first. Some people used to be really vague with that instruction. I'd hear people say that, hey, you need to get in God's presence and, and listen first. I didn't know how to do that. In fact, if I just try to sit there and just listening, uh, he's not speaking to me in an audible voice. My mind's going to wander during that time. In fact, I might have all kinds of thoughts that come in. I don't know. Is that God? I don't know. So how do you, how do you listen to God? He's made it so easy. He has given you a Bible. So yes, listen to God first. That is a great way to start your, your normal prayer time where you open up your Bible, you read it. And by the way, ideally you're systematically walking through books of the Bible. So you're reading it in context. And so maybe today you're, you're reading in Daniel and you're in the next chapter that you were reading yesterday. Now your next chapter and you, you listen to God first by reading the Bible. You're reading for relationship. You're reading in order to respond to what God is saying to you. Now, now you pray. You've heard from him in the word. Now you pray. You say, well, how do I start? Well, in most of our polite conversations, when somebody just said something to you, you start there. You start talking about, well, God, you just showed me some amazing things about yourself. And so I want to talk about that. That's what you just, that's what you just talked to me about in your word. Now I'm just going to marvel at man, your, your sovereignty, your love, or, or you just convicted me of something in my life, my pride or my lust or my greed. And, and so Lord, I got to start there because you, you brought that up and your spirit's applying that to me. But then you, you begin to pray about other things. Of course, in that time with God, you submit to him. Lord, I, I turn everything over to you. That should be a rhythm of your life. Lord, in this time of prayer, I lay it all down. I praise you. I thank you. Then there are those things that aren't we responsible to pray for certain things? Aren't you responsible to pray for the members of your family? You, you're, you're not doing something right. You're, you're not being faithful in prayer. If you're not lifting up the people that God's entrusted to you in your life, pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for your problems. Pray for unbelievers in your life. You know people who are destined for hell unless they turn to Christ. And so you need to be praying for them. How about unengaged, unreached people groups around the world? So, so what about people who've not heard the gospel in China or in Pakistan or Afghanistan? So what about them? That should be a part of what we feel responsible to pray for. How about this? Here's a prayer responsibility. What about the missionaries from Staples Mill Road Baptist Church? 
in a challenging world like this, if, if some other church is not responsible to pray for these that have left our church to go serve, we are certainly responsible. And, and if you need to know their names, um, we'll give you those names where you can be praying for them. Pray for your church family. Pray for us as we try to reach our own neighborhood for Christ. Pray for our country, our divided country. Pray for our troubled leaders. But if you need to know also how to pray, how about going to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and just read again about how, what did Jesus say prayer should look like? What is that model prayer? Or go to the Psalms and watch David cry out to God from his distress and his problems and, and still come out praising God. Go to the Scriptures. But let me give you one more invitation when it comes to prayer. Come to our Wednesday night prayer meeting. And you think, well, I don't know, I'm scared to pray out loud. You don't have to. We've got people who will pray aloud. But why don't you come for the next few weeks, next few months, just be a silent prayer warrior and hear men and women pray around that room as they pray for missionaries, as they pray for nations, as they pray for unreached people groups, as they pray for the sick in our church and pray for our community and pray for a revival in our nation. It'd be a great time just to, to observe and pray in your heart, to learn to pray. Because listen, the scripture is very clear. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, listen, for the sake of your prayers. But not only that, we're told because time is short, you should love. Love. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we're to have our minds clear and sober for the purpose of prayer and so that we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we understand the context here of 1 Peter, a lot of talk about suffering, right? And he's going to talk about it more in the weeks to come as we go through the next passages. A lot of talk about suffering for Jesus. And you and I live our lives in the context of varying degrees of persecution. And so how are we to withstand the maligning that Peter's talked about, the suffering that we experience for Christ, and more that we anticipate in the future? How do we do it? Well, we're going to do it through prayer, but also we're going to do it together. That we need a body of believers to be around us where we can love and support each other. So vital for us to thrive as exiles in these days by doing so together in a loving body of believers. I get to see this every Tuesday night in the life group that I'm a part of. As men and women come together and share the ups and downs of life. But to hear sometimes my brothers and sisters who don't work in a church like I do, they might come from their secular workplace and talk about, you know, here's the, here's the pressure I'm feeling at work, this pressure to conform, or this, this seminar I had to attend, or here's how they're talking at work, that pressure. But how wonderful they can come to a group of people who love them and say, this is stress, will you pray for me as I navigate this? Or others maybe where family members have begun to persecute them because of their faith in Christ and their commitment to the scriptures. And, and to know they're not alone, that's a beautiful thing that we get to do for each other in the church and even in our life groups. We are to be a loving family in the midst of a hateful, increasingly abusive world. And so in order for that to be true of us, to love each other like we ought to, we do need to be on guard. We live in an age of division and anger out there. We need to keep that out there. And as we relate to one another, it has to have a different mark. It needs to be love. Let's guard against cynicism. Let's guard against division. Let's certainly guard against apathy and indifference toward each other in the life of the church. Notice here in our text, we're called to something far more than merely attending a church. That is a wonderful beginning when you decide, I'm, I'm going to begin attending a good church. But so much more is called for. Look at it again, verse 8. Above all, here it is, keep loving one another, catch this word, 
earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. Peter said the same thing back in chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So be sober-minded so that you can pray and so that you can love each other earnestly. So Christian, you are in error if you've made it your goal to attend a church, but I don't want to get any more involved than that. That's like your goal. That's your goal. I've just learned to keep arm's length distance. Then you're in error if that's your mentality toward a local church. You're also in error if you think to yourself, really, I don't need other Christians. Some Christians need other Christians. I just don't need people. You're in error there. Or if you think, really, other people don't need me. And they're doing just fine without me. That's not what the scripture is telling us. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And then he adds this interesting statement. Since love covers a multitude of sins. You probably heard that statement before. Love covers a multitude of sins. You might have even seen it on a Hallmark card. But what, is that, what does that mean? Let's talk first about what that cannot mean. Love covers a multitude of sin. Cannot mean that love will atone for my sins. Have you met people like that? They feel like, well, I'm just such a loving person that that makes me right with God. And so I, I've kind of almost atoned for myself is if I even needed that, I'm just so loving. It certainly doesn't mean that. And our love for each other can't atone for sins. Peter makes that very clear that it's the precious blood of Jesus that we just celebrated a moment ago. That's what cleanses us. That's what, that's what makes atonement for our sins that we can be reconciled to God. So what does this mean? One person said it this way, when believers lavish love on others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. In other words, we're to have such love in our fellowship that many of the offenses and slights that might happen in the body, they're quickly forgiven and quickly forgotten. So Peter tells us here, there's a connection between the way we love and how we rightly handle sin when it happens in our fellowship. So we are to be quick to help each other with our struggles in sin rather than to condemn each other in our sin. This doesn't mean that we ignore sin, but it means we don't attack each other because of sin. So our goal is always in the church to lovingly and patiently lead brothers and sisters out of the bondage of sin. So without love, when sin comes up in the body, if we don't have love, then we just enjoy pointing out the sin in other people. If we don't have love like we should, we become judgmental with an air of superiority. Well, I'm better than you because I'm not struggling like you. But where there is love in a church, we're quick to actually share our struggles with each other. That's, that's who we want to be. Where, well, I, I know I'm loved here and I know you love me and I love you. So I can come to you and say, would you help me? I'm struggling with sin in an area of my life. I'm not, I don't mind to bury that. I need you to help me. Help me with my, with my anger issues. Well, help me with my materialism. Help me with my lethargy and my apathy. Would you pray for me that God would revive me? So we can come to each other, not hiding it because we, we love each other. Where there's love, we are quick to forgive each other when someone wrongs us or we perceive that they did. We're going to be very difficult to offend. We're going to be very difficult for us to hold grudges. Love does cover a multitude of sins. And one expression of love here that Peter gives us, he calls out the realm of hospitality. So hospitality, very important in the first century and in ours. But in the first century, they had no church buildings. And so many times the churches, the gatherings of believers, they would meet in people's individual homes. People would have to be hospitable to open their home for the gathering of believers. But also there were no hotels like we know them today. And so when someone was traveling from one place to another with the gospel, the believers were expected to open up their homes and to show hospitality. Now our culture is a bit different here. We do have buildings, aren't we grateful? Now, still churches meeting in schools and some of our sister churches looking for places to meet, pray for them. But we're blessed here, at least in our culture, with these buildings many times. 
We also have hotels, and so we don't typically have to house people like that. But I do remember when I was with the IMB and back here in the U.S., and I would speak in some churches on occasion about missions. And, and usually the church I was going to, if I was out of town, they'd say, what's your preference? Where do you want to stay, a hotel or a family? Well, I'd let them choose, but I always wanted to stay in the hotel. You guys know I'm an introvert. I'd, I'd, I'd like the privacy. I'd like the quiet, and I'll be there on Sunday morning. But I would let them choose. And, and so sometimes they'd put me up in a home. And that was also nice. I remember one family in Kentucky when I was there to speak one weekend and, and uh, stayed in their home. And they took me to a night of bluegrass music. It was a lot of bluegrass. <laughs> I'm from North Carolina. We don't, at least where I'm from in North Carolina, city boy in North Carolina, we don't do a lot of bluegrass. It was a fun, fun night. I learned a lot about bluegrass. And I still have fond memories of that. I, I enjoyed their hospitality. A little too much bluegrass, a little too much of them. But but it was sweet. It was sweet. So, but in what way should we be hospitable in our culture here? You know, it really could be opening up your home to other people. Uh, it could be opening up your home for a life group. And, and there's, there's a need for another life group, maybe in your area. Uh, we don't, we'll, we only have so much space in the building and, and really there's something wonderful about the ones that meet in homes too. And so maybe it is, I'm going to open up my home for a life group to meet here. Or maybe it's a grow group, those smaller groupings, sometimes coming out of the life groups, three or four men or three or four women. And you say, hey, let's meet at my house and we'll have coffee and we'll pray together and read the scriptures together. Or maybe there's a home team. I know our students so soon, I think, getting back to the home teams on Sunday evenings. It takes hospitality for various homes to open up for these students to come in and, and to encourage each other. But the idea is this, certainly, whether it's your home or whether it's Panera or whether it's at a park, certainly we're opening up our lives to each other that I want other people involved in my life. I wanna make space for people, even in my busyness. I've gotta make room for others, for edification, for encouragement. But get one other practical word on hospitality, it also needs to be true right here when we gather even in this space. You know, it's possible for a church not to be hospitable. Church consultants tell us that every church thinks they're a friendly church, but oftentimes it's not true. They think they're friendly because they're friendly to the people they already know, but guests come and think it's not a friendly church. And so it's always good for us to evaluate, are we welcoming? And so one of the ways we welcome is to actually invite people to church. You don't want your neighbors to think, must be kind of an exclusive church because they've never invited me there. Be, be hospitable, love them, invite them to come. They may not say yes, but they might. And when you see somebody here you've never met before, make sure that you're being hospitable. Hey, we're glad to see you. Now, here's the concern some of you have. Look, I've only been here three years. Some people have been here for 50 years. I'm afraid I'm going to welcome a 50-year-old church member. Don't, they won't be offended by that. They know a lot of people are here. Risk it. Just go ahead and, and just say, hey, good to see you. I don't think we've met before. So glad you're here and you'll make a new friend. So let's invite, let's welcome people, and let's include them. Let's attached to them. So listen, in the finite time we have on the earth, what should we do? We're to pray. We're to love. And then this, we're to serve. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So we are to serve the Lord in these remaining days that we have on the earth, using our spiritual gifts. Peter here brings it up. Here's how you're gonna serve. You're gonna serve with the spiritual gifts given here. And he teaches us a couple of things about spiritual gifts here that we should call out real quickly. First of all, there are a variety of spiritual gifts. He doesn't lay them all out here, but he just lets you know God's varied grace is given in the gifts that he's given you. 
Places like Romans 12 spell it out a little bit more as does 1 Corinthians 12. But listen to Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now listen to this. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Variety of gifts, even more laid out in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. But the idea here, Peter just lays it down in broad categories. Those who are speaking, hey, speak like you're speaking the words of God. By the way, there's nothing better we can speak than the scripture. But then he says, and those of you who serve, and that's all kinds of things here, all, all serve in the strength that God supplies. I think about this in the life of the church, how beautiful it is that we see this here. We see on display every Sunday and throughout the week, men and women gifted by God with spiritual gifts, and they are putting them to use to the glory of God. And it's in all kinds of ways. Those who have administrative giftings by the hand of God. I, I sometimes sit in with our finance team and I watch them run the numbers and their spreadsheets and, and just wisely thinking about church money, being good stewards. And I, I've never tired of just watching different gifts, gifts that I don't have, and this is beautiful to watch them work like this. Members of our board doing policy things, kind of just helping the church stay on the right track. Our personnel committee also. Then there are all these gifts of service. We've got guys in the sound booth. We only think about them when something squawks. <laughs> but here's a shout out while things are going beautifully. Um, these guys just serve week in and week out like that. It's beautiful gifts and skills that we don't, all of us don't have, but there they go. Kitchen committee. You know, the people get here early on Sundays before, before the eight o'clock service, they're, they're making coffee in there so that you and I could have a little hospitality there. Greeting and all that. Teaching people, teaching adult life groups, all the study that goes on in teaching and the children's ministry, all these people pouring it out right now and in the next hour. Just so many ways. Those work with students in evangelism. The whole point is there are a variety of gifts that God gives, and it's beautiful to see them on display. But another point here about spiritual gifts here, each person has received a spiritual gift. Did you notice our text? As each has received a gift. And that means you. From the, from the moment you trusted in Jesus, in addition to the, to the abilities, natural talents he might have given you at birth that you developed, but he's given you a spiritual gift, at least one, from the moment you were born again. Now, you might ask, well, how do I know what my gift is? And there are some spiritual gift inventories you could take. But really, the best way to know if you're gifted for something is to hear about a need in the church, see a need, and, and just respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting and say, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Now, you're going to be scared. You're going to feel inadequate. And you step into it. And then, then you find out, am I gifted for that? Now, sometimes you'll try something. Okay, apparently I'm not gifted for that. I don't think I want to do that again. But I do want to give you an encouragement. Sometimes you step into that and you realize, you know what? I was scared, but God came through for me. And, and I want to tell you this. You're not always not gifted just because it didn't go well. You know, anytime you do something the first time, it could be rough. You, know, you might stand up to teach kids and they were just actually squirrely that day. And, and, you know, that was a tough time. But you still might be gifted for that. You hang in there. You can get better at some things. You can develop that gift. Another thing is don't, don't compare yourself to other people and think, well, they're gifted in that. So much so that I know I don't have that. Don't, don't conclude that you're not gifted. I mean, pastors have to do that. So, so we, we know we're gifted to preach and teach, but 
but goodness, we're not all Spurgeons, you know, and we're not Adrian Rogers. So I can think, well, I'm not like Adrian Rogers. I might as well just go home. No, but there are people, in my estimation, the words I use, some people are just super gifted. And a lot of us are just normally gifted. But I've been given a gift, and God's the one who chooses what measure of gift I get. I'm not supposed to go home with it. Okay, I'm going to bring it. I'll give you another example in the realm of mercy. So by God's grace, God has made me so much more merciful than I was when I was lost. When I was lost, I, I could pick on you. I could bully you. That was, that was me. Kind of sneaky. I would do it sneaky. But that was me. But by the grace of God, he's created a lot of mercy. I mean, so maybe among my gifts, maybe is a gift of mercy. But if I compared myself to my sweet mother-in-law, who's since gone on to be the Lord, then I don't have any mercy compared to her. Let me tell you how merciful my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, the sweetest woman I've ever known. Have you ever heard somebody talk about their mother-in-law like that? It's not, it's not the punchline that I like watching in sitcoms. I had the sweetest mother-in-law possible. Here's how sweet she was to, to an extreme degree. So when she would get a mouse in her house, she didn't get the good mouse traps where it killed them. She'd get a have a heart mousetrap, catch them alive, take them out to the corner of the yard and let the mouse out to do what? That mouse is coming back in. It's a sweet deal. This sweet lady's going to let me out and feed me and bring me back in. I don't have mercy like that. Kill the mouse. That's my mentality. I'm just saying, if I compared to her, another way that she was like this, so extreme in her mercy, her love for the poor and homeless. So when World Vision would send mailings to her house, I can get a thing from World Vision or some ministry and think about it and throw it in the trash. And uh, Mrs. Garrigan, World Vision would tell us about, tell her about people starving around the world and, and she had mercy and compassion and it would move her. She'd make her own contribution, but in those days, World Vision would actually give you one of those little plastic bread loaf bank things and they would ask you to go to local convenience stores and ask for permission to place it there at the register and to collect those donations. And she would do it. She would busy herself out of deep compassion to do that. She had the same kind of compassion for, for the unborn. It would cause her to weep and move her to action thinking about the babies. But here's one. This is just how extreme. One more example. Uh, she cared about the homeless and, and she used to leave her car unlocked in front of her house there in Manassas, Virginia. And when the family said, mom, your, your car's unlocked out front, she'd say, I know, I know. I'm thinking that if a homeless person were to come by and need a place to sleep, they could sleep in my car. I don't know that anybody ever took her up on that. I don't think that's very wise. I'm just saying the woman was wired <laughs> for compassion and mercy toward other people. So, so listen, don't compare yourself and think, well, I don't have that, then I'm that. That'd be, that'd be like watching the Olympics and watching people run and they're like elite. Think, well, I better not ever run again because I'm not that. Or I better never play volleyball again because they're just amazing. No, you have a gift. It may not be like somebody else's use it. And then this, this gift is given to you by God for the benefit of other people. Did you notice? This is a gift like none other. This is for you to share with others. Verse 10, very clear. As each has received a gift, listen, use it to serve one another. This gift is not for you. It's been entrusted to you. Notice he calls you a steward of it as good stewards of God's very grace. You are responsible to use the spiritual gift God gave you in the body of Christ and beyond for the service of other people. This is like when when you were younger and your mother bought a present for you to take to a birthday party, it was your mom's money. She bought the gift wrapped up, but it wasn't for you to open. It was for you to take and give to somebody else. You would have been unfaithful as a child had you cracked open that gift and just played with it yourself. So the gift God's given you, think about it, it's for somebody else. So very practically, let me ask you, are you serving in the body of Christ? Are you serving? Are you a good steward of the gift God has given you?
Just as that would be unfaithfulness if God blessed you materially and yet you would not give into your local church, same thing if God has given you a spiritual gift and he has and you're physically able and you say, I don't, I don't really intend to use my gifts in the body, you're, you're being a bad steward according to the scripture. God has given you a gift and you are to use it, I love this, in the strength that he supplies. This is the secret to not burning out in your service. Serve in the strength he supplies. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Now this, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So it's his gift he's given you to use in service and it's his strength you're depend on in the service of others. Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We're to serve. What do we do in the short amount of time, the increasingly short amount of time? Pray, love others, and serve others. And I, again, celebrate how we see so much service in the life of the church. And we've seen it for years here. Over recent months, we've had to say goodbye to some sweet saints in the life of the church, some older members who passed away. One of them was Leroy Tyler. Some of you may be new to the church. You didn't know Leroy but maybe some of you actually knew his face. Maybe you didn't know his name. But Leroy served in many background roles in the life of the church through the years. Uh, one of the ways he would serve was to be a greeter and an usher. And so many of you would have known that white-haired man who would be at the top of the stairs. And he'd some, when we had the bulletins, he'd stand there, but just always greeting. I gave him a name at his funeral when I preached his funeral. I now call him the Iceman. Some of you might have known him at the fellowship dinners. He was the guy giving out the ice and the lemonade or the tea or the water. You would see him there just serving on the kitchen committee year in and year out. Uh, before his health got bad, he was uh, one of the bus drivers around here taking groups on things. Just serving so sweet. Just a, just a person serving the body with, with what he had. Another person who passed away recently who had that heart of service was Barbara Burris. And so in the time I've been here, Barbara has been in, had been in poor health most of the time I've been here. But it was so sweet to hear of her previous service before her health declined. Uh, she used to be heavily involved in children's ministry back in years past, plugging in with kids. But also when we did a lot of drama stuff in the day, she would be one of those who made the costumes. And, and they told stories about her like in a scurry to put together another costume they needed or something tore. Just those practical ways of serving the body. How beautiful. And it takes a, an army of people by God's design using the gifts he's given for a church to go like this and to, to reach out to others. And many of you serve just like that. And if you haven't found your place of service, step in like that. I think about faithful musicians here. I think about people who serve in so many ways. Those of you who served in our family VBS just a couple of weeks ago, how wonderful. Those of you who teach children every week. And then I want to do this, just talk about the men and women who went to camp with children this past week and went with our students to camp, giving up a week of work. Uh, and, well, that's good, giving a week of work, but giving up a week of vacation to go with students and with children to camp. And among those wonderful volunteers, a whole team of them, two teams, children's and youth, Nick Bonnet put something on social media that touched me, and I asked for permission to read this. This is what Nick wrote from camp this past week. He says, when I was in camp as a teenager, this retired police officer named Nick Jack, rather, Jack Hooven, always drove us to camp every year. And without fail, Jack cried like a baby watching us worship and seeing us grow spiritually throughout the week. Well, I'm officially three for three and crying during evening worship for the week. Staples Mill students are responding to God's calling. Decisions are being made and youth are getting right with the Lord. I'm absolutely here for it. Amen. There's our students. Yeah. yeah. That's so good. 
Nick's just one of many serving, but I thought just an illustration of, hey, you're giving, sometimes inconvenient, but what, what, a, what a blessing you receive in return. And, and it does mean so much to so many. So here's our mission until Jesus comes. Pray, pray more than ever. Love, love more than ever. Serve, serve more than ever. And here's our motive. We'll close with this, verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.